John 5. If there is anything that the political climate in 2012 in the United States might make clear to us, it is that the realities of truth and of proof are very small roadblocks in the minds of those who are determined to oppose something or push something that is false. Be it an economic debate, be it a historical debate, be it a gun debate, whatever the case may be, many people simply do not let truths, let facts, or let proof sway their opinion on various matters. I was talking to someone this morning about this and the reality that oftentimes we in our human nature have a tendency to allow our opinions to override our perception of what is in fact true. And in that regard, the trend is not simply a political one. Human nature is very prone to ignore truth when truth is not convenient. It is a strong human tendency to rest upon our own perceptions to rest upon our own ideals, to rest upon our own loyalties, even above what is clear, what is obvious, what we might call accurate in the world. Such is the case with the Gospel of Christ. We live in a world that is full of very clear manifestations of God to man. Science reveals that there is a Creator. Logic reveals that there is a God. Morality demands a higher being in order to even exist. God's reality, the reality of His presence is all around us. Certainly sin reveals God's existence. The very fact that we are sinners shows us our need for God. The same is true of the Gospel. Though the Gospel is without question true, yet... These proofs of the truth of the gospel are often lost upon them who hear them, are perhaps ignored by those who hear them, may be hidden by those who hear them, certainly missed by many who hear them. In today, in John 5, verses 30 through 47, is where we find ourselves this evening, we're going to ask two questions regarding the gospel. And... By God's grace, the passage will answer these two questions for us. The first question being this. What proof is there that the gospel is true? What proof is there that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true? The second question this evening. Why doesn't man accept Christ's gospel? Why doesn't man accept Christ's gospel? See, Christ walked upon this earth and he came with a message. He came with a message that these people that heard him were to obey. And that message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message was that if you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you would be saved. That message is encapsulated in many people's uh, favorite verse, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that was the gospel that Jesus Christ came preaching. Well, what is the proof of that gospel? And why doesn't man accept it? This should be a very good reminder to us who are believers. And by God's grace, it will give us a greater determination to tell others about Christ.
So let's begin with this first question. What proof is there that Christ's gospel is true? Look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 30 of John 5. Jesus Christ speaking here, he says, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that his witness, which he witnesseth of me, is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say, that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. What proof is there that the gospel is true? The We'll see three proofs. We could possibly break it into four. I'm going to break it into three proofs from this particular passage. Before we do so, I'd like us to recall the context within which we rest. Jesus has healed the man with the infirmity at the pool of Bethesda. After all of the dust settles from that incident, the Pharisees learned that it was Jesus who healed and commanded him uh, to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath day. So they contended with Jesus about the lawfulness of a man carrying his bed on this day of rest. The Pharisees were guilty, as we learned about a couple of weeks ago, of honoring their own application of God's law above honoring the very person of God himself. And Jesus warned them, we recall, that there was coming a day when all men would be judged by God according to the honor which they gave to God through the honor which they gave to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we step into today's passage, Jesus continues speaking with the Pharisees by reminding them that all which he has told them of belief, of condemnation, of judgment, of resurrection is just because he is doing nothing more than reflecting the will of God in his message. He says, this message is from God. It's not my message. It's God's message to you. He says that if he had come in his own exclusive witness, if he had just come and said, look, I'm true because I say I'm true, then his witness would have been false. But he did not come bearing his own witness. In verses 32 through 41, he lists these other witnesses that have borne witness of him. I'm going to give three. One, the last one we could break up into two if you, if you would like to, but I'm going to make it one witness, and we'll talk about that when we get there. The first witness we see is in verses 33 through 35, and this is the proof of John. The proof of John. When, we, when I say John, we know that we're speaking of John the Baptist, he who we learned about at the beginning of our book. In verse 32, Jesus states that there is another that beareth witness of him, one whose witness is absolutely true. Now, Jesus Christ is not speaking of John in verse 32. We'll see that as we continue in the context, Jesus Christ is not speaking of John. Verse 33, however, through 35, is speaking of the man who we know, the prophet John the Baptist. Verse 
33 says, Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. So John came, we remember from way back when, work with me here, try to remember, he came as a complete representation of the Old Testament system. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He came uh, eating the locusts and eating the honey. He came uh, wearing the camel's hair. He came in that very Old Testament prophet uh, look with a very Old Testament prophet message. Everything about him was indicative of the Old Testament prophet. The Pharisees therefore greatly appreciated him. And as we read in Matthew 3, 7, they even came and attempted to publicly submit themselves to John's baptism. Now, John, knowing their motives were incorrect, knowing that they came not in repentance, but they came in pride, called them a generation of vipers, turned them away and said, if you want to be baptized with this baptism unto repentance, then bring forth fruit unto repentance, and then come and tell me you want to be baptized unto repentance. So Jesus says in verse 34, he says, Now John came and bear witness of me, and his witness was true. Now I don't need the witness of any man, he says. There's no man that I need the witness of, but because you regarded John, because you saw him as a prophet, which he was, I'm going to tell you this. And what he wants to tell them is in verse 35, that John was a burning and a shining light, that John's testimony was truth. However, though they were willing for a season to rejoice in that light, they stopped rejoicing in that light when that light merged with the light of Jesus Christ. For all that John's testimony declared Jesus to be Messiah, and in spite of the very clear testimony to the Jews that John declared, Jesus makes it clear that he himself does not rely on the testimony of any man. Any truth claim that relies upon the testimony of simply a man to validate it is a truth claim that is on a foundation of sifting sand. Whether that truth claim comes from the Buddha, whether that truth claim comes from Gandhi, whether that truth claim comes from Mohammed, whether that truth claim comes from the Dalai Lama, if the truth claim is only from a man, if the substantiation of some truth is simply a substantiation from one man to another man, then that claim is on sifting sands. Excuse me, shifting sands. But Jesus says, I don't need the testimony of man. I have a much greater witness than man. And in verse 36, Jesus gives this second proof. This is the proof, the second proof that he would give, and this is the proof of works. We're still bookended with verse 32 here, the ultimate proof. We haven't seen the ultimate proof yet. We've got the proof of John. We're getting the proof of works. The ultimate proof is coming up. Verse 36, he says, But I have a greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. So we have the proof of John. Second, we have the proof of works. The Pharisees were convinced that Jesus was not from God because he had told the man with infirmity to carry his bed on the Sabbath. Clearly a violation of their interpretation of the Sabbath day principles. But as we mentioned two weeks ago, what the Pharisees forgot is that just prior to the man carrying his bed, he had been unable to walk for 38 years. They completely missed the power of Jesus Christ because they were so stuck on their interpretation of the law. 
In their zeal for their own proud ideas about God's expectations upon men, they were completely blind to truly supernatural miracles that Jesus had been doing for all men to see. So Jesus Christ says, you want to see that I am from God? Number one, look, John the Baptist said I am. Number two, look, the works that I do. These are works that the Father has sent me to do. Look at the miracles that I'm doing. But even Jesus' works were not the greatest proof that his gospel is true. In the next two verses, he would appeal to that ultimate proof. Look with me at verse 37 and 38. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you for whom he hath sent ye, uh, him ye believe not. So the final proof actually all the way through verse 41 is the proof of the Father. But it's not just the proof of the Father. It's the proof of the Father through the scriptures. Jesus Christ is not speaking of the time where a voice came from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Certainly we remember that, but that's not the proof he's speaking of here. What Jesus Christ is doing is he is appealing to the Holy Scriptures as the proof from God the Father to man that Jesus Christ is in fact Messiah. He's appealing to the Old Testament. When we think of the Father's witness, we do think of that declaration this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But verse 39 and 40, Jesus says, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come unto me that ye might have life. The Pharisees had ample witness of the gospel, testified by God the Father himself, as it was recorded by holy men of God throughout the ages. Men, all the way back as far as Moses and all the way up to the time of Malachi were under the inspiration of God himself testifying of one that would come. And Jesus Christ says, if you look into those scriptures, I fulfilled them. I fulfilled the Old Testament. I am the Messiah. Let me summarize what Jesus Christ is saying here. Jesus Christ's ministry was aligned with and confirmed by the testimony of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was seen by all Israel as a prophet of God. His ministry was further validated by the amazing works which he did throughout his ministry. Healing of sick, of lame, of blind. Uh, later on in his ministry, even raising the dead to life. But as Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, it's not these testimonies. He's relying upon, but he is relying specifically upon the testimony of the Old Testament to prove that he is, in fact, Messiah. Now, we know the Old Testament had been penned, spanning nearly 1,000 years of history, recognized by God's people, the Jews, as divinely inspired by Jehovah God himself. There was no question in the mind of any Jewish man, woman, or child that the Old Testament, led by the first Five books of the Bible, penned by Moses, known as the Pentateuch, were given by God directly. Were the mouth, from the mouth of God into the pens of those prophets and men of God who wrote them. They came from God to man. There was no doubt in anyone's mind. 
Within these pages were the promises of Messiah, revelations of God's character and His will, and expectations of God's law, and these all meshed together. As Jesus walked upon this earth, He didn't need man's testimony. He didn't even need His physical works. The fact that He came and He fulfilled the Old Testament was proof positive that Jesus Christ was Messiah. And so Jesus says, if you want proof, the Father Himself has given you proof written all over the pages of the Old Testament. But as Jesus testifies in verse 40 and 41, they would not come to Him, nor would they honor Him, that they might have life. They wanted no part of life. Notice what He says, And you will not come unto Me, that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men. Why? Why doesn't man accept the gospel of Christ? Our first question that we asked was, what proof is there that Christ's gospel is true? Our second question now, why doesn't man accept Christ's gospel? As Jesus Christ says here, ye will not come unto me that ye might have life. Why? Why? Have you ever wondered that? When I was in college, I would go every week to a nursing home and minister. And I've told you about Mr. Dean Boyd before. At the time that I was ministering, he was 97 years old. In the nursing home, he had been... It was assisted living home, not, not a nursing home, in fact. He had been a college professor in his earlier years. Very liberal. Uh, wanted nothing to do with God. Atheist, all of those things that all these men who profess themselves to be wise, but are in fact fools, say. And I would go there every week and I'd talk to Mr. Boyd one-on-one. And every week I'd give him the gospel. And you could see in his eyes that he knew what I was saying was true. But he was so proud that he refused every week to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I would leave his room every week, I would say, why? Why? doesn't he accept the gospel? Why doesn't he accept it? That's our second question. Let's look at it together. Verses 42 through 47. Jesus says in verse 42, But I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, ye will receive him. Excuse me, him ye will receive. How can ye believe? which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only. Do not think that I will curse you to the Father. There is one accuse you. I'm having trouble reading that. I'm sorry. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings... How shall ye believe my words? Why doesn't man accept Christ's gospel? If I were to give you a short answer to that second question, and you know your pastor does not give short answers, but if I were to give a short answer to that question, it would be those four words right at the beginning of verse 42. But I know you. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that it is within the heart of man, it is human nature to refuse the truth when the truth conflicts with what we want. 
And why would the truth conflict with what we want? Well, remember that second parallel theme that is driving us through the book of John. We have the theme of belief, and then we have the reality that men love darkness rather than light. There will always be unbelievers as long as there's a sin nature because there will always be people that want to bask in the darkness because they love their darkness. They don't want to come to the light. They're not interested in the light. They love darkness rather than light. There is none that are good. No man is good. And the man that is not good loves darkness. They don't accept the gospel because they, not because they cannot come to the light, but because they will not come to the light. Not because they do not know the truth of God, but because they have refused the truth of God. Not because they have not been illuminated, but because they will not be illuminated. It's not that they can't see the light. It's not that they couldn't step into the light. It's that they refuse to step into the light. That's the heart of man. Jesus gives three evidences here of their love for darkness. Look at me at verse 30, uh, uh, 42. Excuse me. He says, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. They are blinded by self-love. Mankind is blinded by self-love. The love of God is not in them. All throughout the Old Testament, the commands of the law were intended to be an extension of the love that the Old Testament saint had for God. In Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, as God described himself, he described himself as a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. In Deuteronomy 6.5, as, as Moses is preaching that great sermon, by extension of course God speaking, Moses says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. And with all thy might. See, the Pharisees were seeking to rigidly obey the commands of God, but did so in a manner that was completely separated from a love for God. They didn't serve God because they loved God. They served God because in serving God, they could look good. They could foster in themselves a love for themselves and their own self-righteousness. So as they went down that checklist and they said, God, look how well I'm serving you. Look at the things I'm doing for you. Look at how I'm keeping these Sabbaths. Look at how I'm, I've got these tassels that are on my garments just as I'm supposed to have and they're long tassels. And I've got your words written on my forehead and I've got all of these things and they're all in place and I keep every law and I keep every feast and I keep everything and I'm so particular. God, look how much I'm doing for you. Aren't I such a good person? And in doing so, they were no longer loving God. They were loving themselves and keeping the law in themselves and the love of God was not in them. That's what Jesus Christ is saying here. He says, I know you that the love of God is not in you. Certainly they were loyal to the law of Moses, but that loyalty was compelled by self-love, not a love for God. Ladies and gentlemen, we must be careful that our, that our obedience to God is compelled by love for God. Not by a desire to lift ourselves up. Not by a desire to compare ourselves one with another. Not so that we can look out our window and look at our neighbors and say, look at those poor people. So lost. So confused. I'm so glad I'm not one of them. That's not why God has saved us. And that is not the purpose of obeying God's commandments. We obey God as we are compelled by love 
for God. They were blinded by self-love. Secondly, in verses 43 and 44, they are blinded by pride. Look with me at verses 43. He says, I come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? This self-love that these Pharisees had fostered in themselves a pride whereby their standard for accepting a man to be from God was not based upon his conformity to the character of God, nor was it based to his conformity to the will of God, but rather their acceptance of a man was based upon his conformity to the standards they have set up in their own lives. If I may put it this way, they determined how godly a man was by how closely that man resembled them. If that man was just like them, then they determined him to be a godly man. If that man was different from them, then he was a man that had sin issues. He was a man that had godliness issues. He was a man that had righteousness issues. Wow. This is what Jesus Christ is saying here. If a man comes and he is speaking in his own name and he says, look, this is me and I am saying this and look, I'm doing all of these things according to the law of Moses and this is what I'm saying, they applaud. Yay, this, what a godly man this is. We accept this man. We accept this man because he's just like us. Because he conforms himself to our idea of what it means to be a godly person. That's what was happening here. Blinded by pride. And so Jesus asks them that question in verse 44. How can ye believe when which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God? How can they believe when they are seeking the honor of one another? When they are seeking simply to lift one another up? Blinded by pride. Finally, third and finally, verses 45 to 47, they're blinded by unbelief. Notice what he says. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? You can imagine with me the level of offense, perhaps even anger, that the Pharisees would be feeling at this point towards Christ. Jesus has once again revealed to them their own sin, their love of darkness, and their personal unbelief. Yet throughout Christ's ministry, the one thing that the Jews held on to, the one thing that these Pharisees held to and clung to, was this dividing line of loyalty between Jesus Christ and Moses. They would constantly convince people that if a person sided with Christ, he was siding against Moses. And if a person sided with Moses, then he, he was siding against Christ. And they were constantly bringing up this contrast. By the way, that contrast is still happening today. People that say, if you have certain standards, then you're just a legalist. You're not siding with Jesus Christ because Christ was this God of love. Other people saying, well, if you're siding with this Christ, then you're clearly not siding with standards because Jesus Christ and standards don't go together. This is still happening today. Other things have been happening from this passage. We'll apply them in a moment. Well, Jesus in these three verses turns this logic on his head. From this point on, the Pharisees could not even use that argument legitimately if they tried. And they will try again. But there's no legitimacy because Jesus Christ destroys the argument right here. 
He's telling them that one day each of them will stand before God. And when they stand before God, Jesus is not going to be the one accusing them before God. It's not going to be Jesus saying, these men did not believe. Jesus tells them that Moses will be standing there. This one that they keep appealing to. This one, we're on Moses' side. We follow Moses. We're loyal to Moses. We're, 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 we're following Moses. Jesus says, one day you're going to stand before the throne of God and Moses is going to stand there and say, these are unbelievers. What a rebuke. What a rebuke to these Pharisees who are blinded by self-love, blinded by pride, blinded by unbelief. And that's how he finishes his rebuke. Had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? If you, if you won't believe Moses, if you won't believe the one that you revere so much, when he wrote of me, you're never going to believe me. If you won't believe this one that you honor and respect, you're never going to honor me. You know, there are numerous applications that can be made to this passage. First, foremost, and always, do you believe? Everyone in this room, to one degree or another, lives a life in conformity to the expectations that are drawn in the Bible. But have you truly accepted the truths that the Scriptures claim from Genesis to Revelation? Have you ever believed on the name of Jesus Christ? Have you ever accepted Him as your personal Savior? Have you ever been saved from your sin and from your sins? If you have not, I encourage you, do not play games with eternity. If you are not sure that you are saved, make today the day that you are. But most in this room are believers. For us, numerous considerations. The first consideration. Consider the importance of the Old Testament. I've mentioned it before and I'll mention it again. There are many who downplay the importance of the Old Testament, who believe that the Old Testament is just good for history. We don't really need it in our Christian life. After all, we are New Testament believers. We are in the New Testament church. We are not under the law, but we're under grace. Consider the importance of the Old Testament. This is one of those passages that reveals that, in fact, the New Testament cannot be properly received without having first received an understanding of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is imperative for us understanding that Jesus Christ was who He said He was because Jesus Himself appeals to the Old Testament as the ultimate proof of His Messiahship. We must never downplay the importance of the Old Testament and never allow another believer to downplay the importance of the Old Testament, for Jesus Christ used it as the pinnacle of proof. Second, though Jesus Christ was speaking here to unbelievers, and I'm speaking to believers this evening, we are yet not exempt from the tendencies that Jesus Christ teaches here in verses 42 through 47. We are not exempt from self-love. We are not exempt from self-pride, and we are certainly not exempt from having a disposition of unbelief, though we have believed on Jesus Christ and His salvation. Perhaps these elements of self-love and pride have twisted our worship of God and formed habits of false religion in our lives. Have you devoted yourself to the rules of the Bible without devoting yourself to the love of the God of the Bible? 
This ought not be so. Our obedience to God must be compelled out of our love for God if it's going to have any foundation and certainly if it's going to lay up any treasure in heaven. Another question as we close. Has your pride caused you to judge another man's spirituality or the validity of his ministry based upon the degree to which his ministry or his message or his life is in conformity to your own personal beliefs? In other words, as the Pharisees looked at a man and they said, we accept that man because that man believes what we believe, do we have that tendency in our own hearts? We do. That if a man doesn't believe the same thing we believe, we kind of write him off. As a man that's maybe not as godly as we are. As a man that's maybe not as legitimate as we are. And certainly we want to be careful to guard doctrine. I'm not speaking of doctrine here. I'm speaking of standards. I'm speaking of applications. Let's be careful that we're not judging people against ourselves. Let's be careful that when we, when we seek to judge the fruit of a man's life, which we are entitled to do as believers... We're not judging his fruit based upon how does his fruit compare to me. How we judge a man's fruit is we open the word of God. And we say how does what he says, what he thinks, how he lives compare to what God calls us to do in the word of God. This is the standard by which we judge fruit. I don't judge my neighbors based upon how they conform to my standard. I don't judge the people in my church based upon how they conform to pastor and his standards. That's not how we judge a man. That's not how we discern fruit. We discern fruit based upon how men and women conform themselves to the word of God. The world in which we live, even our own human tendencies, are not exempt from these examples. These condemnations that Jesus Christ gave to these Pharisees. We must not fool ourselves into thinking that our society is any different. What proof is there that the gospel is true? Well, Jesus Christ gave three proofs here. He gave John. He gave his works and he said, even without these, the proof of the Old Testament scriptures, the proof of God the Father himself proved that I am true and therefore my gospel is true. Why does a man accept Christ's gospel? Because he is blinded. He's blinded by self-love, by pride, and by unbelief. This shouldn't discourage us. It informs us. As we step out of these doors and we go back into this world full of unbelief, we ought not look at people and say, well, they're in unbelief, therefore, I'm just going to let them go. Let them burn. Our recognition should cause us to be ever more vigilant and ever more determined that we would tell people that the gospel would get into their ears because the more the gospel gets into their ears, the greater chance that they will humble themselves before it. The more light is shined before their eyes, the greater chance that that light will illuminate the darkness that is within their hearts and they will receive the light for themselves. And so a message like this, as many messages in John, should not give us a fatalistic feeling whereby we say, well, there's always going to be believers and there's always going to be unbelievers, so let's just let it play out. It should cause us to say, how many can we bring into the kingdom before these men face their end and face the dangers 
the doom of eternity in hell. And let's allow that to be the flavor with which we progress from this message. Certainly, important things to learn about how we react to the law. Important things to learn about how we judge men. Important things to learn about our tendencies towards self-pride. But let's also remember that we have a charge to let our light shine so that others, unbelievers, might see that light and respond to that light. Let's pray.